What crisis is going to blindside us? That is the question I discussed this week with Havoc Journal writer and IT expert, Matt Trevathan. So this was an unfair question that I was asking him, Matt, because I didn't just ask what crisis is going to blindside us. I kind of gave him a chance to give us his top three. And Matt did his best to shoehorn a cogent discussion of huge issues into an hour-long podcast. And it was a noble effort. It was a fun effort. It's a very educational effort. And it was a failure because there's no way we can shoehorn that into an hour-long podcast. But it was a blast. Um, I got to do my foggy bottom stuff and use a lot of polysyllabic words and maintain an even NPR-ish tone as we discuss all this. So it gave me a chance to nerd out a little bit. Uh, We had a couple of tech issues. Matt's audio goes out a couple times. Um, So unfortunately, you won't find out who exactly killed Kennedy um, or the name of, I don't know, next season's winner for The Voice or anything like that. But other than that, uh, it was a great episode. And uh, I don't think it'll, Matt's audio will detract in those brief moments from your overall enjoyment or edification throughout the episode. What you will get is a lot of depth on issues that may very well blindside us in the dangerously near future. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of The Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, or as the case might be this week, one particular writer at Havoc Journal, Matt Trevathan. He graduated with a degree in computer science from Mercer College. He's a father of four. He is a world traveler and a photographer. He is also number 204 on Wikipedia's list of prolific inventors and I don't think Charlie would mind me saying this, but Charlie Faint, the Havoc Journal, uh, the owner of Havoc Journal, is a longtime friend of Matt's. And when Charlie was telling me about Matt, the word he used for Matt, not ironically, not with a hint of, of sarcasm, was that Matt was a genius. So absolutely no pressure at all, Matt. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It, just because he may call me a genius, I'll probably freeze up on the uh, podcast now. Thank you, Charlie. <laughs> That's what he does. He teases us up. He also said we were all about to have a, a you know technically error free uh, episode. So he's got a couple of things in in the in the ether right now that could that he's set us up for for failure. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, so Matt, you are a bit of an exception on the show. You join a list of prodigious non-military guests. We've had Alice Atalanta, Steve Lewis, Elisa Suderman, Kathy Livermore, and now you. And it is, it, as I say, it's a prodigious list. Like they've they've crushed it. Um, so I'm super excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. Um, not the least is your worldwide travel that you've done as a businessman. And I think you're going to bring a lot of perspective to our topic today, a topic that hopefully will be completely academic. What crisis is going to blindside us? And I, you and I talked about this through email uh, prior, but I, I kind of stipulated, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the news. We talk about our internal descent in the United States with the Chauvin trial and all that. We talk about Russia and Ukraine. We talk about you know the strikes on Iran's uh, Natanz nuclear facility. There's a lot of stuff that gets a lot of press. And that we say, oh, that could be the next hotspot that could lead us into war, that could really um, hammer us or, or lead us to some bad juju. Um, but I was interested with your experience in finding out about stuff that maybe isn't getting that press or an aspect of something that is getting press that maybe is undercovered and um, and something that might really blow people's minds and give us a different perspective. I should also just stipulate we can list a lot of potential topics and even a stopped clock is right twice a day. So we're giving ourselves a a high percentage chance of pinging something that very well could take place. So I don't mean to do this as a cop out, but we decided to go with three, potentially three uh, blindside scenarios. So let's just dive into it. Um, What do you have? What do you think would be one place we could look? 
So I, I think probably the first place I, I want to kind of build up. So the first place I would think is what's happening between Turkey and the U.S. and really the rest of NATO, but particularly this week with our continued degradation of relationship with Turkey. Uh, this week, Biden said, hey, Turkey, um, you need to apologize for killing 1.5 million Armenians 100 years ago. Uh, I'm looking at everything that's happened since uh, we've gone into Iraq, the problem with the Kurds, uh, us taking the Kurd sides in many cases and trying to offer them protection, and looking at the intricacies of the map in the Middle East to understand that when you protect the Kurds in Iraq, you protect the Kurds in Turkey, uh, and and think that we're on a slippery slope with a strong ally that's working with uh, cozying up to Vladimir Putin and Russia, and we're basically slapping them in the face uh, on the world stage. I don't think that's one of our wisest moves. And, and is increasingly radicalizing under Erdogan as well, and has been for some time, to be sure. Yeah, I, I think there's a – overall, I think what you will notice in the world uh, is a backlash even before COVID on globalization sure. and where countries are finding their footing. The United States was one of those. I, I think Trump was a, a nationalistic answer among many other things, but I think um, people were looking for a sense of nationalism as we started to globalize. If you look down in Brazil, you get yep. a similar type of response from the people and I absolutely think Turkey – uh, has that same feel. So, uh, finally, so no, yeah. Finally, okay. if you look at Russia and you, and you look at China, uh, as much as people are talking about globalization, uh, a lot of the leaders in the world are actually looking at consolidating their national power. Absolutely. So let's talk through the Turkey issue. So uh, I, I think the word genocide actually came from the annihilation of 1.5 million Armenians uh, in the early 20th century. Are you tracking that as well? That was my understanding. Yeah, that's a strong word. It's probably a true word. Uh, but again, we we don't t- go up to Putin and say, will you apologize for the three to seven million Ukrainians that you starved? Sure. We don't talk to the Chinese and tell them, hey, that great leap forward killed you know 45 million people. Why don't you apologize for that? Yet we're going to go to our own ally and say, you committed genocide. You're, you're right. So let's. So I, I think I can argue this both ways, and help me make sense of this. So I think there's an argument between, look, did the Turks commit genocide? Yes, of course. We've held off saying that they've committed genocide and holding them to any kind of public accounting for it, um, mostly because it just wasn't in our political interest. We had the Cold War going on. We needed their alliance. We had... Uh, post 9-11, a lot of moves, obviously, we were making in the Middle East. We couldn't afford to piss off Turkey. And of course, as you point out, Turkey's a member of NATO. So it just politically never made sense to do that. So doing the right thing, calling it a genocide at the wrong time, does make it the wrong thing. But then there's also the argument that, and I've seen this get bandied about uh, Twitter lately, that Moving the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem was also supposed to be one of those benchmarks that, ah, you just don't do that. That's going to set off too many bells and whistles. Um, that's going to be lights and sirens in the area, and we don't want to get into that. And we moved it, and Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, and it didn't really change anything. So the argument, I've heard people forward the argument that, hey, some of these, let's call them symbolic moves that we can make in foreign policy maybe just should be done because it's the right thing to do and let's let the chips fall where they may. What do you think about that? I think the difference here is the right place, the right time for Jerusalem uh, was the first thing. If you really look at what was going on in the Middle East and you look at our containment of Iran at that point in time uh, and how the shifting powers are in the Middle East. That was a statement um, to Saudi Arabia, to Jordan, to to their, their neighbors that, hey, we're here to support Israel. Um, it's also something that if you look at every U.S. president in the past, my lifetime, the past 40 years, they've all said Israel should move to uh, its capital to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and or we should move our embassy, mm-hmm. excuse me, to Jerusalem. And this is one of those times when somebody just Followed did it. Through. I do think it was the right place, the right mm-hmm. time. The but the difference here is we've got a ally in NATO, a, a strong previous alliance sure. during the Cold War, 
I, what I mentioned earlier is we're looking at nationalistic tendencies around the around the world and a repositioning of power. I would have told you during the Cold War, I wouldn't have told you in the 80s, that China and Russia would be cozying up as, as bedfellows. Right. Yet they are, at least to some extent. So the world is shifting. And I just don't think it's the right time to have these discussions or force these types of issues. So, yeah. And mm-hmm. the other the, the other piece, the other piece is is you have to think sometimes about it's pointing back at our house. Um, if you're going to make some of these statements, you, you got to point back at your own house and clean your own house. So if we're making these statements to others, it's kind of hypocritical when when we can look at things like Tuskegee. Uh, and, and count back on things that we've done to the Japanese uh, during the internment camps of World War II. For sure. And yet so we're, we're pushing I, I, the only, one of our allies I guess, to, diff- to do the same. So sorry, Matt. I think I, I think I lost you there for a second. So I thought you'd ended. This is the joys of recording these remotely from each other. Um, let me let me throw this out. I, I think about You're good w- when we talk about the Tuskegee stuff and and certainly our sins. Um, I, I would say that. I guess the it's the the poison's determined by the dose. The how much accountability we're asking for is determined by what we expect the accountability to encompass. So calling the Turkish uh, genocide a genocide doesn't really make that many demands on Turkey. It's just acknowledging that fact. And I think for us, we certainly as a country, I don't think have had a problem admitting our flaws. I think we're probably, I I think we could take the Pepsi challenge with almost any other country as far as who's admitted and been very self-flagellating in admitting our our faults. But I would throw this out here also. um, It's another point I've seen raised uh, among blue checkmark Twitter. You know, Turkey, as much as they are a NATO partner, they um, they are a bit of a wild card. There is a lot of moves that they have made. You've talked about their growing affection and their relationship with Russia. Um, certainly the way that they have supported multiple terror groups um, in and around Syria and on their border, and even in defiance of us and defiance of our objectives, of the U.S.'s objectives and of NATO objectives writ large, um, there's the argument that, look, who cares if we do something symbolic like call this a genocide and call Turkey out for it? Because Turkey certainly hasn't hasn't buried us with niceties lately. They've gotten increasingly unfriendly. They've become more of a frenemy. They're very passive aggressive with us. They don't uh, share information well. They are um, an incredibly difficult country for us to work with and have have by far been the fly, the biggest fly in the NATO ointment up to this point. In that context, do you think that maybe Biden was just saying, hey, let's get real here. Let's let's start, start calling a spade a spade because you guys aren't being that nice. And so we're not going to be that nice. And it doesn't mean we're going to go to war, but we're just going to be frank in our differences and calling things what they are. Is there any value to that? I mean, there, there there could be value in that. I I guess I still look at it as as shoving stick in someone who's reportedly your ally right into their eye. Um, and I also look at the the tendencies of that administration. And if you really think that that's going to to make them um, take another look at how they're treating us, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's going to change their minds. I think it actually could embolden them and keep them with a tighter grip on the country because again you got to look at that sense of nationalism now our allies are sticking us and poking at us about things that happened 100 years ago these guys aren't really allies we should be standing more on our own i could make that argument uh as a member of of turkey's administration just by what the u.s's statements are on genocide yeah i'm i'm kind of burying my thesis at the end, but I think it dovetails with that. I think you're absolutely right. This all comes down. I I think the big sticking point in all of this is their membership in NATO and what this means for us. And I don't think that this, that everything Biden did would necessarily end their involvement in NATO or even for that matter, end NATO's existence because it just makes us, it's an alliance now of too many disparate entities that no longer have a unified mission. But I do think it could, it very well might um, 
trigger the dissolution of NATO. I, I do think NATO is is the issue here. And how much do we want to publicly embarrass a NATO partner of ours that as much as Turkey has passively, aggressively undermined NATO objectives recently in the Middle East, um, do we want to be a party to that? Do we similarly want to out them and put the NATO relationship on the altar, as it were? So yeah, I think it, it is a very dicey situation with significant implications because if NATO goes to pot, that is our longest alliance and and has been our most public and meaningful alliance for quite some time. And that's that's a significant uh, degradation in our foreign policy, I would think. Yeah. And, and if you really look at the bigger picture, uh, Turkey as a player is the gateway to the Middle East from Europe. Um, uh, Anyone that looks at the Middle East in, in general can notice that, you know, those types of things travel through things. So many times we travel through Turkey to do other things. They're a strong ally in a lot of areas. They're weaker in others. We've leveraged their air bases uh, during Desert Storm. Um, we leveraged uh, their air bases partly in, in Syria until uh, we were told, hey, this isn't a great thing for us to be doing. Uh, this goes back to those shifting alliances and some of the – even the shifting geographies too. We have to take a bigger picture. Uh, for instance, France is allied with Iran. France is a NATO member. Uh, but France sells uh, some of their airplanes to the Iranians because of their long-going relationship dating back to the break of the Ottoman Empire. We really broke up the Middle East in such a way to always cause these types of conflicts. I mean, at some point we should have looked and said, there are all these Kurds. They're all the same people. Let's give them a place called Kurdistan. But we didn't. We split the Kurds up and we put them in different regions intentionally to displace them and intentionally to displace uh, different different groups of people across the Middle East to cause this type of conflict uh, back when the when the Ottoman Empire was was broken apart. So you're seeing the artifacts of of that displacement today. So on a on a personal level, I mean, what do you think? Do you think NATO's worth keeping? Do you think it's worth ruffling NATO? Do you still believe in NATO personally? Yes, uh, I do. Um, I believe I believe strongly. I think if if we're going to go ahead and throw that type of stone, though, we should just throw it directly at and, and ask Turkey: Is this something you want to be mm. a part of? I can tell you, you know, it, we can find and realign NATO if need be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ukraine being a prime example, um, Ukrainians would love yeah. to to be full glowing members yeah. of, of of NATO, uh, and that would shift things dramatically um, in 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 Europe, and I think it would solidify a lot of that, the old Eastern Bloc nations in, in terms of security, uh, having Ukraine as, as part of a NATO alliance, especially when you look at, at people now that in Europe that don't look as Russia as much of a threat. They're questioning whether they should have nuclear weapons and that nuclear umbrella uh, sitting at their doorstep, and they're wanting to pull out. I'm sure someone like the Ukraine would love to have a nuclear deterrent uh, sitting on their doorstep to protect them from from yeah. Russia, and as much so, as, maybe we need to reevaluate how we have NATO or, or who's a member in right. What level. And and I mean, I love, I love the clarity that you're talking about with that. That we, we kind of clarified NATO and we refine it and we make sure that we all still are singing off the same sheet of music. On the flip side, there's no two ways about it. I mean, we risk having a Turkish Russian alliance go from kind of a semi-formal to maybe a much more formal uh, uh, entity. And I think that could be, uh, yeah, that would be an interesting thing. Have you ever been to Turkey? Have you traveled through there? Um, no, it's one of the the places uh, I have not traveled to. My, my brother has traveled there. Uh, my mom has been there. Uh, but Turkey, before before the this administration, was an absolutely fabulous place for an American to sure. visit. Um, over the past eight years that that I wouldn't feel as comfortable going to Turkey right now. Yeah. Uh, it's taken a hard turn to the right, not a not a good hard turn to the right either. Um, and I wouldn't feel safe uh, at this point in Turkey. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I will say this for anyone listening. Um, I, I think it's an underappreciated, the Ottoman Empire and the history of Turkey is a deeply unappreciated aspect of our foreign policy. Um, for any American that wants to critique our own foreign policy and do quality control on what moves we should make and why we make them, I, I think studying Turkey and centering your studies around Turkey it seems to 
pay a lot of dividends because it 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 has second and Turkey has second and third order effects throughout the world. It's an incredibly pivotal area. Um, it's something I'm still not as smart on as I'd like to be. Um, and I think you can probably spend a life studying that and not know everything you should, but um, infinitely fascinating area. I don't want to dwell too much more on it. Matt, what's your next lineup though? What's, what's the next problem spot that we should focus on? Um, it, this one is starting to get a lot of attention and not in a good way. Uh, and I have some um, personal contacts in this one, uh, which is India. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID is really taking effect in India. Um, and it's not just in Delhi. I know we're seeing a lot of news come out of Delhi, uh, crematoriums over capacity, crematoriums on the streets and in, in vacant lots, um, rushes for oxygen. Uh, I read some local papers in India outside of Delhi and even tech hub centers like Hyderabad and Bangalore are suffering right now from uh, from COVID. Uh, we had a work order for our employees to start going back into the office uh, earlier this year, um, and that is now being discouraged. And if you really look at at what's going on, uh, their their medical system just cannot handle the weight of what's happening. And the danger to me that's happened out of this is. When the first wave hit the United States, everyone hunkered down, and India really did. They were yeah. solid. They hunkered down pretty strong. I had one guy out of our team and out of about, at that point, 1,100 people that got COVID. He went in the hospital. He came out. One. On my immediate team right now, there are two or three, um, and and so it's – I know that doesn't seem like a large factor, but the fact I can name these people by sure. name – um, I know of a young gentleman um, that did pass away yesterday uh, in his late 30s, huh. uh, could not get oxygen in Hyderabad, yeah. um, and they, they ran out of oxygen, and he passed away. His father now has COVID and is in the hospital with a lung infection. If you go to the hospital right now in India, it's a death warrant. Um, you're that sick, and they do not have the ability to, whether it's a public or a private hospital, to take care of you. On top of that, India was exporting about 70% of its oxygen before this COVID outbreak to other countries. And so now they've got a deficit and um, people aren't stepping up. It it amazed me today to see Pakistan, their their enemy, their vehement enemy, um, step up and say, look, we've got ambulances. We've got, you know, things to help you guys out. We want to send those over. Uh, I think that was a that was a big deal. But India's India's fall right now to COVID, not just now, but over this whole uh, pandemic is is really dangerous to the balance of power. I don't think people realize that right now. That's a really good point. I did not know that about Pakistan. That's super interesting. I can speculate causelessly. I'm not, I have absolutely no information and no news that I've seen that would justify this cynicism, but I can speculate on reasons why that could potentially be in Pakistan's interest. I think the least cynical reason I can think of is Pakistan's like, hey, let's stop this while it's in India before it gets to Pakistan and overwhelms us, though. Actually, I think that's absolutely a cynical reason <laughs> to, to do I it. I was thinking even more um, cynically because I, I was thinking about fifth columnists and other ways that, that chaos could ensue. <laughs> but yes, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's a wise move by Pakistan. Um, it shows goodwill. Absolutely. Uh, and, and at this point, it's kind of like looking at our southern border right now, and I'm talking about way south, like Brazil or Chile, where the COVID vaccine was given the Sino- the uh, the Chinese one. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, oh, right. It was given. It's only got a 50% efficiency. So the Chileans got excited and thought, hey, we're, we're all getting vaccinated, but it's not effective enough, and they're starting to, to see numbers rise, or they've been seeing numbers rise. And then you look at mutations that are coming from uh, Brazil. The the P1 mutation is supposed to be very, very dangerous. Well, the same thing is happening in India. In fact, India, what they're looking at may have had a double mutation. So they got this thing from South Africa, the coronavirus from South Africa, and it's mixed with something else. And it's a whole lot more contagious. And I'm seeing that on a personal level. And um, just due to the infrastructure, to the poverty, to the government in India – um, everything is just not in India's favor. I wrote an article on Havoc Journal when COVID started, pointing India out as a potential hotspot because of these things. And I, 
I'm sad to say I think it's coming to fruition. Yeah, that is sad, but good for you. I mean, clearly your head's on a swivel with this. Let me, I, I want to kind of level set and walk people through how India got to this stage. Um, but before I do that, um, maybe the best thing is to tie this to our listeners. How does this affect the U.S.? Okay, so India gets hit. It's a tragedy. You know, somebody gets Sally Struthers on TV. Let's do a fundraiser. I'm being an asshole by saying that, I admit. But, um, but I mean, you know, but this is a humanitarian issue. How does this affect us? Why should the average American go, holy crap, um, look what's happening in India? And how is this going to affect them personally? How is this going to affect us personally? I think the first thing you have to look at is India is a counterbalance from a from a sheer population standpoint to China. It had the second largest GDP before COVID and has now seen the largest drop in GDP since 1952 at about 7, 8%. Um, When you look at it on a business level, part of our vaccines come from India. Almost all of our drugs, whether it's Allegra, uh, which is an allergy medicine, um, all the way up to things like Viagra, for instance, uh, and life-saving drugs from people like Novartis are coming from India. They produce a lot of pharmaceuticals over there. And when you, com- com- when you combine that with uh, what we've done with offshoring and the number of companies that use Indian resources to uh, manage their IT or create new products, um, all of these things affect us. Then there are some sub-effects uh, also in other industries, um, such as being able to find furniture, which uh, thing, uh, some companies uh, actually source a good bit of furniture out mm. of India because of the labor. So there are some underlying um, things that will affect us uh, from, from India, um, some on a more personal level in terms of, of drugs, uh, some on a business level in terms of IT. So a, lo- a lot of supply uh, chain things really is what I'm hearing. I and that's really what's getting affected. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, and, and I love that you brought up, um, uh, you brought up what I think is a, is a great point about the balance of power with China. I've been fascinated with the Chinese Indian, um, I don't want to say a struggle for hegemony because that might be overstating the case, but certainly the fact that they are neighbors and economic rivals and in the disputed areas, even military rivals, um, the fact that they are taking such a hit on, lest it not be said, a, a, a Chinese generated disease, I think is a, uh, it, it's a very nice, uh, subtle, well, I guess maybe not so subtle way that China is destabilizing its closest regional uh, rival and that balance of power might very well the the balance the imbalance of power and making China, leaving China in a more powerful state than India could also embolden China could it not? It could. Uh, it, my first trip to China, uh, I I got my passport, got all my visas, and got stamped. And it was a very easy transaction for me. And sometimes in how you travel to another country tells you how the relationship of your country to that country mm-hmm. is. Well, my guys that were supposed to join me from, from mm-hmm. India, I have a 10-year uh, travel pass. They could get a 90-day travel pass. And it was an act of God for these guys to be able to get a visa to come into China. And these were Indians. On top of Sorry, that. Sorry, these were, were Indians. Okay. Yes, there right. were, these okay. were Indians. There were no direct flights from Hyderabad, which is one of the big centers of of uh, IT in India, to uh, to where I was in China and South China, there were there were zero direct flights. They had to all go through Malaysia or Singapore, wow. um, but I could get a direct flight from um, Guangzhou to Paris, France, <laughs> as an example. So it's not a question of distance; it's a question of relationship. Yeah. Culturally, I also noticed there was a difference in the way I was treated uh, in China compared to the way that my Indian guys were treated in China. Um, and and it was very blatant. It was very noticeable when we were in meetings and things about support and those types of things. They would have rather have had support coming out of America than support coming out of India. I'm going to be very on brand and get distracted by the shiny object you just threw out there. What? How do the Chinese see Indians? What's their impression? Do they obviously they don't they're not fond of them, but is it more um, do they see them as 
a, a lesser culture? Do they are they threatened by them? Do they see them as every bit their equal? What, what exactly? What's the nuance of that relationship? I don't think they view them as equal uh, at all, at least in in my interactions. And I'm sure there's someone that can listen to this podcast and say, well, I've had a different interaction. But from my interactions, um, it's definitely not on an equal footing, which puts it in in this relationship right now into a dangerous place. We've seen what was going on on the border between uh, India and China in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. Uh, This would be one of those, uh, looking at the third topic I was going to cover, which was really uh, China and China. Right now, this would be one of those areas where China could rear its ugly head and push a little bit more into disputed territories in India. Um, Absolutely. And there wouldn't be much that India could do about it. Uh, so I'm, I would not be surprised to see if that type of action flares up before this. That's is exactly what I was thinking of when I when I said the imbalance of power and possibly emboldening China. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, that would be – if I were – in the Indian Ministry of Defense, that would be my major concern is what is this going to mean for us? Um, I want to backtrack just for a second because I just want to do our due diligence on making sure people understand how India got here and what lessons we can pull possibly from this. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong or have any of this off, my understanding is that India, like you said, was on top of COVID. They did these lockdowns. Everything was good. My understanding is that the UK variant kind of exploded in India. And it happened mostly because India suddenly loosened all the restrictions. And they did it mostly because they wanted political events to occur. Uh, Prime Minister Modi was very interested in making sure there was turnout for the elections and people could come to rallies. So for political reasons, they really loosened the restrictions. And that seems to be what brought about this horrific whatever, second, third, fourth, fifth wave that has done so much damage. Is that true? Do I have that right? Or did you see something else going on? I think that's part of the picture. But um, I I personally believe, and we've watched this happen in the United States, uh, people are social. We like to be touched. We like to talk to people. We like contact. India, with 1.3 billion people in it, has a lot of contact. And when you lock people down for so long without that contact, when they eventually start to have contact again, they go a little bit crazy. Look at what's happening over in Israel. Everyone's getting vaccinated right now, and and Israel's going crazy. Um, Now, they aren't having the breakouts that India's having. And the reason is, is number one, they've been really good about getting vaccinated. But in India, it goes beyond political there are a lot of religious holidays that were just missed last mm. year. Beautiful religious holidays in India, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian, whether you're Hindu, um, they tend to celebrate just about everything. But they make a big deal of it. They're social mm. events. We have um, kept them canned up. or They've, they've stayed canned up for yeah. a year. And at, it wasn't just the politicalness opening, but the second the political things opened, it opened up the need to do these religious things too. Got you. Got so you. I think it's as much of a cultural lockdown as a um, as a political Got one. You. Yeah. The other thing that people aren't seeing is, and I alluded to it in this GDP, um, with that drop in GDP, they're still able, a lot of my guys work from home. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate. Um, some of these pharmaceuticals work from home, fortunate, but they stopped a lot of building, a lot of workers that were migrant workers. They live out in these small villages. They've migrated into these big cities. They live in shanties to help build Delhi, to help build Hyderabad, Bangalore, Mumbai. When COVID hit, they told them all to leave and they shepherded them out. Now they're bringing them back in and, and they're, they're, these guys are moving out again. They have been so abused and mistreated at this lower end. Because the economy, maybe at the top is doing okay, but the economy and and the way people are being treated at the bottom in India is a very, very different uh, feeling in India. At at Um, some point, yeah, at some point, Matt, uh, we need to do a much more in-depth dive. I would love to talk to you about the caste system in India and parallels that we can draw from that to your point before about globalization and uh, kind of the the antipathy towards elites and the rise towards nationalism, populism. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting 
parallels that might be able to be drawn there. And that's a huge subject. So I won't even ask you to give us a taste of where that could go <laughs> right now. But I want to throw one other news item that I just saw today. And I, I'm assuming this is the first time it's been reported. Um, I, I might be wrong about that. But apparently on April 7th, so about 18 days ago, the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet it went into India's economic uh, free zone. In, in, and that's something that by a U.N. Uh, treaty – is not supposed to happen without India's approval. We, interestingly enough, are not a signatory to that particular treaty. But what was really interesting is that 7th Fleet and DOD did not apologize for it. And we even were asked about it. And nobody's apologizing. We just said it appeared to be not an impulsive act, not accidental. Um, it most likely had clearance from higher U.S. authorities, um, whether it's military or, or civilian. Somebody okayed this. And it was interesting because under Trump, I know that we had been working towards having a much stronger partnership with India for multiple reasons, not least of which because it would balance out China and China's aggression. So the fact that Seventh Fleet did this and there wasn't any sense of regret, remorse, um, or even just goodwill between friendly countries – is incredibly interesting to me. So I, my questions to you are, A, have you heard of this incident? And B, I th- what takeaways does that make you think when we talk about a weakened India and the way and the, the lessons that China, us, regional entities could take from seeing this kind of event? Um, I have not seen this incident reported. I'll just go ahead and say that. Uh, but there are a bunch of ways to read uh, our naval incursion with the Seventh Fleet. Uh, I'm going to take this one and, and being totally biased and 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 peace giving here. Please. Uh, the U.S. government, the Navy, has an amazing ability to project force, and projecting force isn't always using weapons. Projecting force can be bringing water, bringing clean supplies, um, bringing power to to an area. Uh, bringing oxygen if needed. You know, one of the byproducts of of a nuclear reaction on a submarine is being able to produce oxygen so everyone can breathe. Mm. Um, there could have been some other means that were under the covers between Modi and Biden. Uh, that's looking at it as a as a best uh, best <laughs> case scenario. Right. Um, <laughs> the 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 worst case scenario is maybe we're we're testing the waters ourselves, not from an incursion standpoint, but to understand where where India's readiness is, uh, in case there is something that happen happens from China. And I'll be honest with you, there's enough interest for the United States these days in India. Um, uh, an attack on India, a devastating attack on India, would would have catastrophic effects on the United States, even if it was a, a massive action um, from from China, could have devastating U.S. because of the supply chain stuff that we talked about before. Yeah, okay. definitely, definitely okay. interesting. I I know this is a, a hot button issue for you, so I don't want to put it off any longer. Tell me, uh, you can bleed this everything we just talked about right into the South China Sea, but I want to hear what you have to say about that. Um, uh, I, uh, a few years ago, I was on a cruise in Singapore and I like to relate things on a personal level. And I, I don't think people understand how busy the South China Sea is. Uh, we left out of Singapore and it looked like, uh, an LA highway of boats. Hmm. Um, as we left Singapore, the sheer amount of traffic, boat traffic that goes through the South China Sea, whether it's to Europe, whether it's to Africa, um, even to us or back and forth, is is absolutely massive. And you don't realize it. You can see some pictures. Um, you can see satellite photos, but you really feel it when you're on the ground and you're seeing all these boats. You wake up in the morning and you may be out at the ocean and normally you'd say, well, there's nothing to watch out there. Let's go up and sun on the beach. But you can literally watch freighters all day. New wow. freighters go by uh, left and right of you. It's a very, very busy set of shipping lanes. Um, classically, all the way from you know the 1400s in China, uh, early on, China saw the value of maritime trade. 
uh, in the Ming Dynasty, and they they created a large fleet. And this is where this dash line con- concept comes up from. They created a large fleet that really explored, I think, all the way to Africa. Um, and they're they're using the exploration laws to say, look, since China explored all the way over here, we have some level of right. And if you mix that with all these little dotted atolls that are out there that China tries sure. to claim, um, they're really trying to clamp down on the South China Sea because to them, before the uh, the the hundred years that they want to forget inside of their history. Um, they really held power over the South China Sea. Hey, Matt, sea. before we get too far ahead, just because I'm sure our listeners, I don't want to lose our listeners in the details. Tell us about that. What do you mean by that? The hundred years that they want to forget? Uh, basically, um, towards the, the fall of the last emperor of China up through the Republic um, into the start, really the start of Mao, uh, there, China started to fall out of power in the opium wars with uh, with England. So what England had done in India is come in with a trading company and really taken over India through business. And they were producing opium and sending it into uh, to Hong Kong and into Canton. And uh, as an attempt to spread the empire of of the British into China and over the, the creation of the opium wars, over, over the the time the opium wars happened, that was a real mark of decline in in China. That was the start of that big mark of decline. The Chinese want to forget that. It's sh- it's shame and humiliation for about 100 years, all the way up to Mao. Uh, everything about China was on decline. Um, then Mao comes in and, and introduces communism, uh, or what he says is communism at that point in time, and starts to give this vision of a new China. And that vision uh, is is where they start remarking history uh, as coming out of shame in, into the power, which, you know, for, for centuries, uh, China had in the East. And to them, this is almost like a birthright to them uh, to, to be in that position of power. They've got billions of people. And um, that hundred years is, is where they really fell. If you go read history books and you look at the power tables and and figure out who had the power in the world, not in the West, but in the world. China, uh, for for centuries, was was the strong. Sure. What uh, was the strong point in the East? So then, when you so when we look at the South China Sea, thank you for explaining that. By the way, that's that's great. Again, China is one of those many areas, and Chinese history is one of those spots that I'm really getting interested in right now. And I, that just seems like an infinite. Yeah, a subject you can you can study for infinity and and never find out enough about. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us. But what? So go back to the South China Sea now. So obviously, China's aggression there when they claim these atolls as their own property um, and and kind of have these imaginary lines of demarcation around what they believe is their territory that can present problems that can affect world, global trade and what have you. Is that it? Is there something else going on? Um, what are the what elements are in play when we look at the South China Sea? What do we need to be focused on? Uh, well, naturally, trade is the biggest element. Um, that's what drives the world. And and as we've pushed towards globalization and global economy, there is a trade aspect. But, but then there's what I'll call the good neighbors aspect. Um, I wouldn't want to be Taiwan right <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, I'd question even being South Korea. You know, that's your that's your next door neighbor, and and the poor Koreans um, over over the centuries have have really been the uh, they've they've been the um, dividing line between Japan and China in many cases, and uh, I'm sure they do not sleep well at night knowing their Chinese neighbors are are sitting next to them. And are starting to become a little bit expansionistic. Uh, I found it curious that the Vietnamese are also looking at bettering ties. Here's a here's a country that, you know, in my lifetime, I was born in 1974. We were still in a war with these guys pulling out, and um, and in that time of almost 50 years, uh, if you start if you go start a war over 50 years. Um, it's a very different place now in uh, in Vietnam. Although they still consider themselves communist, they're starting to look towards the West sure. uh, to build stronger relationships. So I, I think it's it is beyond trade itself. I think there is a type of rule 
that the Chinese uh, look at that they had over that region um, before they're missing 100 years, that they really want to not just control trade, but control the East as their so theater. L- l- let me just, for the record, say that you have essentially wrecked a one-hour podcast because you've you've brought up Turkey, India, and China, which are such rich subject matters. There's no possible way we can do that justice in an hour. But so in the interest of time, I'll, I'll try to, to ask you one specific question that is going to probably bring up too much history for us to adequately deal with. In your estimation, well, let me set the stage. With China on the rise and China becoming increasingly aggressive and all the factors that we've laid out about how China could be emboldened and all the avenues of approach they could take to establish hegemony in the region, there has been an argument for some time that our, the United States' best recourse might be to encourage Japan to become militarily independent and um, in a way that they haven't been since the end of World War II. Obviously, Japan's history is one that pretty much every time they've had a military, they've ended up taking over the Pacific Rim. They've been an incredibly um, aggressive country when given a chance. In your estimation, what are the pros and cons, and is that risk worth it to allow Japan to rearm, refit, and hope that they provide a counterbalance to China in maybe a way that India might not be able to? Um, there's a lot of resentment between China and Japan that, that goes back before, uh, before World War II. And, and there's a lot of resentment from World War II, a lot of bad things yeah. between China yeah. and Japan. Um, yeah, you know, the Japanese people are some of the nicest people that I've met. And, uh, I've watched their police force train in the morning when I was there, um, about 10 years ago during the Fukushima quakes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you can see how they really are uh, polite, but the Eastern view of life is very different than our view of life. And um, I could see militarizing them actually as a counterbalance because the the Chinese and the the Japanese uh, have very um, very cultural views of life. They're they're sacrificing life for the culture. Uh, there's always a danger of of rearming an ally such as Japan. Um, at some point, we have to let Japan arm. Uh, we can't afford to be Team America World Police forever. Uh, more and more, um, I think one of the good things on the Trump administration was pointing out to our NATO allies, you know, America foots the bill. Y'all don't even pay your sure. minimums. Um, I think – Yes, there are some dangers. There's always the danger of them rearming and and looking for oil and moving east. And but uh, I think you have a stronger deterrent in that region when you combine it with uh, South Korea. We'd have a better way to react if um, South Korea was overrun uh, very very quickly by having a a militarized Japanese neighbor. Um, also, I think from a relations standpoint, you know, we've been. We've been there um, seventy years, yeah. I think, in in China. In Japan. I mean, in Japan. Um, at some point, it's also good uh, to let things be and and to uh, give them a chance to have self governance again. If not, we're paying their defense bill. And if and if we um, end up fighting them again down the road, it would be one of those cases where, look, foreign policy isn't always about doing the right thing. It's about doing the lesser of two evils. And you have to weigh the risks in front of you. You can't you can't always look at your second and third order effects. You have to go, hey, this is the hand. This is the best hand we could play at the time. And we'll just deal with the consequences when they get there. Yeah, China's building its Navy. It's rivaling ours. Um, so even for us to project force over there, we have to move across the Pacific Ocean to even project force. Japan can immediately project force by just going across sure. the bay. Uh, it's a, so even without a strong navy, the Japanese could provide a strong deterrent. Uh, and and with the help of someone like India, maybe create a new balance of power in the East. Um, but there's a few billion people in China versus a significantly smaller number in Japan. I would. 
I would take Army in Japan, and it's significantly smaller number of people right now than than uh, letting things. Interesting. Trip. So, uh, at the risk of asking you yet one last unfair question before we push on, and and, and um, a subject that you will not possibly be able to do justice in the time remaining. Can you just delve a little bit into what you mean when you talk about the Eastern way of viewing life? I've heard this talked about a lot. I've started to read books to understand, especially the Chinese Chinese history and Chinese philosophy a bit more. Um, I'd love to know how you have seen that and what that means to you, especially vis-a-vis the issues that we're talking about now. Um, there is a – when – this will take me back to Japan uh, almost 10 years ago from today. Uh, in, in Japan, um, I was there during the Fukushima quakes. And uh, you would walk into – there were water rationings. There were food rationings. Um, all of the non-Japanese had basically left Japan. So mm-hmm. the people left were Japanese. Mm-hmm. And when you walked into a 7-Eleven, it said, take one water. And the Japanese people, no matter the size of the water, would only get one. <laughs> and me, being the industrious Westerner that I was, would go to the first 7-Eleven, and I'd grab one bottle of water. And then a block away on the way to work, I'd grab another one. So by the time I'm to work, I have six or seven bottles of water, and I am the hero of the floor uh, at our office. Um, they do believe in sacrificing as an individual – for the good of the culture, doing things, and, and it comes down to their life. Uh, the old, um, I'm going to be very Japanese in this instead of Chinese because I think there's some uh, there's some things we can learn from looking at. Um, oh, what is it? The book um, Shogun mm-hmm. with uh, and and looking at the way that the samurai sacrificed there uh, to they would sacrifice each other for the good or. If someone was going to be caught in, in terms of ninjas, they would they would kill themselves. Um, suicide for the better good was accepted. Sure. If you look all the way into World War II and the the act of the kamikaze, mm-hmm. is probably the most telling of how uh, the culture in the East is very different. Where people would uh, hop in airplanes and go on a one way trip to dive bomb our aircraft sure. carriers as human bombs. Uh, that's a very Eastern way of thinking because they were preserving their life and their culture uh, that you you don't normally see in the West. Uh, that's probably the best summary I can give without really going into a lot of detail. And, and it's interesting because off the top of my head, it doesn't seem like that was necessarily – that doesn't seem like that translates necessarily to China and to China's history. That is, it seems to be a distinctly Japanese trait, No. It's an it's a Buddhist it's an Asian trait you'll mm. see it in you'll see it in China also uh, I'm using um, Japan because when I was in Japan I just I was at a point in time where I could readily yeah. see that type of, uh, of of philosophy but the philosophy um, is is very much for the benefit of the country if you talk to people in China and you talk about um, China as a whole then they look at things as a benefit and I, I there are some some areas I, I'm trying not to tread mm-hmm. here um, uh, in terms of how they view uh, uh, people outside of China, but it's a very it's a very China centric um, type of an approach. In uh, I guess the the best thing I could probably say is I've had some friends that adopted inside of China, and uh, their adoption wasn't what they expected when uh, when they went over there. They did bring back a, a beautiful Chinese daughter. But in the process, the nurse was um, sad that this little Chinese girl was leaving China, that she was going to be raised by non-Chinese because it wouldn't make her truly Chinese and she'd be a lesser person was kind of the the um, the discussion I had with this friend of mine. And, and he really felt put off by it. Uh, it. It's it's not just a genetic thing. It's a cultural aspect uh, over there. It's, it's- and they, they, they use that to it's, drive. It's interesting because what you're talking about to me sounds like an inherent Chinese and for that matter when you're talking about Japan, Japanese chauvinism. That they do believe that this is – we are the best and therefore we are worth sacrificing for. Is that a fair way of categorizing it? Um, that It almost is. If in, in a simplistic 
we're in a very short podcast type <laughs> of way. That's probably <laughs> the best way to think about it without us blowing another hour on a right. podcast. But the the simplest view of it is, yeah, they 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 pride themselves in their culture. They pride themselves in, in everything that they do. And and the, to to leave this when I was dealing with um with uh, a client in China. Their response every time that we would have a discussion, well, you haven't done this in China. Well, you haven't done this in China. Um, and it was all about putting up some sites behind the Great Firewall. And mm. uh, they were very concerned about scale and this and that. But I could sh- show them things that we had done and, and deployed on a massive scale. But until I had done it in China, uh, I would never understand how to interesting. do it. You had to do it in China. Uh, so that was, that was probably one of the most interesting types of conversations that I had. And it really leads to that deeper. It's not just a, uh, a, a way of thinking in terms of war. It's a way of thinking in terms of just about everything that they do. It, it seems like every time I do a podcast, all I come out of it with is going, here's five ideas for more hour long podcasts. And, uh, you're no exception. I mean, this is, there, there's so much rich material here. I would love to do an hour or even God forbid longer than that, just with you on China alone um, or on the Pacific Rim alone. I, there's so much to mine there. Um, thanks, Matt. That that's It's incredible. I think everybody will get a lot out of that. This is a good primer. If all we can do is give you ha- give our listeners halfway decent wave tops of these issues, um, maybe we've done all we need to do on that. Tell me about, um, oh, oh, God, before I butcher the name, Hope for Today. Tell me about hope for today. What do we need to know about them? Um, real quick, because I know we're we're running short on time. I I believe in charities that are are action oriented, that are doing good things that you can visibly see. Uh, I travel to India a good bit. Um, I hooked up with Hope for Today through my church at Mount Bethel, and I was going to India and seeing a lot. Uh, India is very interesting because you have a lot of poverty and then you have a lot of rich, and you can have a guy. Who's living in a, in a million dollar house, and all around him are shanties. Um, so you are a have or have not society in India right now. And hope for today deals a lot with those have nots. They deal with the homeless people, um, giving them food, helping them find shelter. They enable women uh, with with sewing teams that teach them how to sew, help them buy sewing machines. So really, some micro mm. angel investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do um, soy distribution where they come into villages and teach them how to build uh, soy factories to process soy into soy milk so their children can drink. Um, and then they they probably one of my most passionate points is run multiple orphanages uh, in where a lot of the places where I am. Um, and uh, these kids would they live literally almost out of a shoebox. They sleep on a concrete floor, and they are some of the most loving, giving children in the world. And every time I'm over there, I'm bringing them school supplies. Yeah. I'm bringing um, soccer balls. I'm, I'm big on playing soccer in India. <laughs> uh, I've almost had a heat stroke before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the kids just—they they want the time. They need the—they—they they love the people coming to see them. Uh, and it's a great way to put some things into into action, helping other people. It's very, very low-hanging fruit to be helpful uh, in in India. Um, like I said, it's it's right now have or have not. And out of these orphanages, these kids are ending up in IT jobs. Really? Um, because they're getting education. Education has probably been the biggest break in the caste system in India. And I've watched people take, um, take their admissions test, and you can tell the families are in poverty. And they they put their lives into this one child, oh, and the child comes out and gets their test scores. And I've watched families celebrate. I've watched moms cry in the streets as the test scores come out. Um, these orphanages help get these kids a set of values um, because they're they're teaching Christian values to these children, but uh, they're also giving them sustenance. They're giving them an education. They're giving them a means that as they ready for themselves for for life. Uh, they're not only providing a place to stay, but an education to go with it. And I think that's extremely important in getting these children out of poverty and helping them be successful. Well, for sure. It's also just, I mean, leaving the charity aspect of it for a minute, anthropologically, that's just interesting. That's fascinating to see that if education is what breaks through the caste system, 
it's it explains a lot how you get so many Southeast Asian immigrants that come to the United States and are so studious and so focused on education because they are acutely aware how important education is, maybe even more importantly in India than it is here because it literally can break through and change your entire social status um, in in ways that certainly it can do that here, but we're a much more fluid society. There, the rigid lines of the caste system are are pretty well established. So the fact that education is, is such a workaround Really, I mean, you build a whole entire incentive structure um, for parents to, to to invest in the education system. Yeah, and you have to be very careful in India. It's 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 really region by region. Um, I'll leave you with with this, and, and again, we could go into yeah. tons on, on sure. India. Uh, but India is is really um, a conglomeration of you know, 20, 30 different little small right. countries. Uh, some of them didn't even belong to the British Empire. They were little fiefdoms. Uh, Hyderabad is a great example, Telangana. Uh, and there are totally different cultures um, from region to region, totally different levels of education, et cetera. But for these high-tech cities like Hyderabad or Bangalore, for the financial district in Mumbai, um, yeah, education is is absolutely huge in helping these people. Uh, and it's a great way if you want to give. Um, I think um, giving a child an education is one of the biggest gifts you can totally. give. Totally. Uh, the website is hopeteam.org. Again, that's hopeteam.org. So by all means, I hope everybody goes and visits that. That sounds incredible. Um, and certainly to track all their lines of effort over there and see what you can do to help, that, that seems eminently worthy. Um, I'm going to throw one out here. I don't always uh, throw out my own charities, um, but I, and this is not mine per se. I mean, I have no involvement with it, but there's one I do want to give a shout out to completely different subject matter uh, from anything Matt and I have talked about up until now, but I, I stumbled into learning about the foundation against intolerance, intolerance and racism, the foundation against intolerance and racism fair. Um, it is um, an incredible group of people that they have gathered together to essentially present an alternative to the main proponents of anti-racism that you hear about, the Ibram X. Kendis, the Robin DiAngelos. Um, and I, I will simply tailor this to our audience by saying, you know, when the chief of naval operations put uh, Ibram X. Kendis, how to be an anti-racist on his reading list, it was one of many markers for me that the military is a little out of touch with the civilian world, and they may not always track what might be controversial, what might be um, maybe counterproductive. Um, I won't totally get into my whole speech on all of that stuff right now, and I'll, uh, so I won't even bother getting on the soapbox. I will just say that when I found out about the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, I thought, now this is how it should be. If you really care about race relations, if you really care about actually helping um, and and not just uh, pontificating or virtue signaling, but if you actually help about, uh, if you actually care about racial, racial relations, the Board of Advisors is phenomenal. It has so many people on there that I admire. Um, I'll name just a few. Uh, John McWhorter, who I've been reading for years, Barry Weiss, the former editor-in-chief of the New York Times, um, Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry, one of uh, a woman who I have been uh, has been one of my personal heroes for years. I've read many of her books. My wife has read many of her books. She's been a, 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 a revered figure in our household for a long time. Ion Hersey Ali. Um, and if you don't know that name, uh, I will link to many of her works uh, in our show notes today. But they are all involved in this, plus many other people. I'm, I'm leaving out a ton of folks. Um, so Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, I will talk about more about them in the future. I think the work they're doing right now is, is spectacularly important in the United States. Please, if you have not already, subscribe. Um, if you have not given us a five-star review, we'd appreciate it. You can write. We also appreciate any feedback, good, bad, ugly. We don't care. We're happy to hear your thoughts. If you could uh, tag onto those thoughts a five-star review, that would be awesome because uh, then the metrics help and we get the value of your feedback. We would deeply appreciate it. You can find the show notes 
So everything that Matt and I talked about, uh, I will be going through this and culling every link I can find or have the bandwidth to find and putting it on the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. So we'll have everything about, uh, you know, from the stuff that Matt and I talked about, but also hope for today, fair, all that. You can find everything else you need to know about that at the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. In addition, we will also have show alibis for anything I misstated. Um, it's also open to Matt if he goes, oh, I really brain farted on this. I don't think he did, uh, just being the person that was listening to him now. Uh, but if he does, he's always welcome to contribute that. It's usually just me that messes up, though, and goes, what did I say? And how, why did I phrase it like that? If you see the last couple of weeks, I've had uh, real uh, brain farts where I've said something that just could be taken out of context in the most uh, – in just a really bad way. I have a, I have a gift for phrasing things in, uh, in context that they don't need to be put in. So read the show, Alibis. You'll get a chuckle out of it. We, we try to keep it interesting. Matt – Thanks, man. This was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Chris, I I had a blast. I hope to be able to do this again. Absolutely. And and I'm dead serious. Like we've got multiple episodes we, we need to be recording out here. Um there's a lot more of a lot more ground we can cover. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Matt Trevathan, and we will see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Beautiful. Um, let me make let me make sure I got this right. It's it's Trevathan, right? Yeah, Trevathan. Am I saying that right? Beautifully okay. done. Beautifully okay. done. It's uh, the name has been featured in such glorious shows as Casino or Las Vegas. I think was it. And there is a football player who played for Denver the year they won the Super Bowl. Now plays for the Chicago Bears. Danny Trevathan. If it wasn't for those two things, uh, my name would be forever mispronounced. <laughs> All right, that sounds good.